Well, good morning. If you would please be turning open to Nehemiah chapter 13. <clears throat> we are concluding our study in this book. We're not concluding this series just yet. Um, we will begin another series next week that will take us into continuing to build a healthy spirituality, but just look at some characteristics of the Christian life that we want to uh, to see in Jesus and then mature in in ourselves. All right, let's look at this chapter. It's uh, a little easier on the pronunciation, I'm thankful. But this is an honest chapter for us to be paying attention to and I trust to learn from. Nehemiah writes, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And for some time I asked leave, after some time I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. And I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God while the grain offering, with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the, of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, excuse me, <coughs> and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Metaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, and I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods, and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah, in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is the evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. 
As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. That's, that's tough. Watch what Nehemiah is getting ready to do. Tougher. From that time on, they did not come in on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language, language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. can't ever say the Bible's not an exciting book. It's like, wait a minute. Is this permission for some things? Hmm, we'll see. Verse 26. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. So we shall then listen to you, Shall we then listen to you and do this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Lord, we ask for the preaching and the power of your word. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. This last chapter of Nehemiah is really honest with the human heart. We've observed how the community of God's people, had, they've been renewing, they've had their hearts renewed, and they're hearing the word, and they're responding to the word, and like, we've got to do what God wants. Yes, let's do it. And they're all saying it together. Yet we come to this, after all their pledges, after all their obedience, after getting everything in order, here we have the effect of the reality of hearts that wander back and forth in our affections for God. You know, one of the confidences that we have in God writing the Bible and it didn't start with people coming together saying, hey, let's come up with a cool story about God and how he's got a son and he'll die for people. Uh, because the Bible is very honest with human struggle. Other sacred writings for other belief systems around the world, they don't include failure as part of redemption. God does. God says, look, I'm going to do everything. You just trust me because you'll still fail. But it's okay. Trust me. He includes it in part of redemption. We see that Nehemiah, after 12 years in Jerusalem, returns to Susa. Now, it was long enough for people to start forgetting what they pledged to do. Long enough to get married. Long enough to start having children. And within those homes, 
They were learning the foreign languages rather than the language of the people of Israel. So when they went to church, the children couldn't even participate with the Hebrew that was being spoken. They weren't hearing it, nor could they participate in the, the recitations, the reciting of the, the Psalms and the word of God that was so, so much a part of life in the Jewish community. You know, Nehemiah coming back, it's like, uh, it's like when your mom cleaned for guests and you went in and, and messed everything up within minutes or your kids have done that. You know that feeling that you have? Like, <laughs> you couldn't keep this clean for an hour? I wonder if Nehemiah came back like that. I leave for a few minutes and look what you've done to the place. They, they have come in and they've messed everything up. All the people that they pledged with all this might and nobility, let's do it, messed it up. And they ended up not doing. They had willing hearts, but their flesh proved too weak. And we see that. Remember when Jesus said that to the, his disciples that were sleeping in Gethsemane? The heart's willing. It's the flesh that's weak. But in Nehemiah's response to the wayward hearts of the people, it gives us understanding for our constant need for heart renewal. We are needing to, to see God, to see Jesus exalted and have our hearts conform to what we see. So we're in need of this heart renewal as we trust Jesus daily until we're with him in heaven. Because that's the day oh, when we see his face and everything will be done. Our hearts will be settled and we will have God. We'll have God in fullness and sin will be eradicated. No more struggle. But as we look at this chapter, there's three big components, and they take up chunks in, the, in the, uh, the chapter. But the three big components of heart wanderings that we need to pay attention to. The first one happens in our spiritual lives. The second happens in our work. And the third happens in our families. So this drift of our affections happens all across our lives. We, we want to do the right thing spiritually, but we maybe find that we have compromises too much of our spirituality, and we want to work hard for the Lord, and but we, we look to trust in what we're producing, what we're getting from the production of our work, rather than trusting God for our work, and then with family. And in family, remember, this is God's design to keep praise within the people of God. God wants the, the praises to be passed on from generation to generation. If our children don't know the language of God, if they don't know the word, they won't be able to praise. You know, as our kids were young, uh, we homeschooled uh, when they were all young, and, and I would remind them and have reminded teenagers through the years that we learn to read in order to read God's word. That's why we do this. And so I love the fact that my wife taught our children to read and they get to read the word of God because their mama taught them how to read because that was the whole point. Like, I, I hated reading growing up. Man, I hated it so much. I was, and I, look, every time, this is just it's the wonderful work of God. Every time I read and all these crazy names that I've had to pronounce through this series, I'm reminded every single time that when I was in you know, second, third grade, I had such a reading problem that, and they don't do this anymore because this is what they did. And during reading class, me and like three other students had to stand up with our books and be paraded out of the classroom because we were the slow ones. We, we read too slow. Because there was this demonic thing 
from the pit of hell that showed, it was this little goofy camera thing, and it showed one line at a time on the screen, and it was a story I could never keep up. And so I'd have to go. This thing was from the pit of hell. Thankfully, they don't use them anymore. But then they, oh, the slow ones get to go to tutoring. But they would just make it slower in tutoring. And I'm like, I hate this. So I just never wanted to read, never wanted to do anything. And what does God do? Uh, How about you become a preacher and you get to read things in front of people all the time? (laughs) It's just what God does. It's just his way of reminding me to continue to trust him. But family is about passing on praise. Now, in the first section, big chunk, through the first 14 verses, I think what we see is the unholy accommodations that were being made within the temple itself. Now, the very first thing is God says, hey, the Ammonites and the Moabites, you can't have them ever around. Now, what have we read? Not only were they around, they moved into the place. They were married off to the Ammonites and the Moabites. The Ammonites and Moabites came from, remember Lot and his family are rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's daughters are like, oh, there's no chance for us to have children. So how about we just get dad drunk and then we'll have kids by him? That's what they did. The first first daughter did that and she had Ammon, what's in the sentence? I think it was a different name. Sentence of the Ammonites and then the other one had Moab. So these are the descendants of Lot. The reason God says, hey, draw a relational line with these folks, because when you came into the promised land, they were on the the east side of the Jordan. When they came in, the Ammonites wouldn't even give them bread to eat, and the Moabites were picking fights. So God said, look, they they don't get to participate in what I'm doing. Now, when we we think of this, and, and people have... The Moabites, remember, they're the ones that hired Balaam to come and his donkey squeezing it. God spoke to Balaam through the donkey. Like, hey, Moab's, hey, Balaam, come curse these people for us. Balaam said, look, I just got to do what God tells me. And then that's when he turned everything into a blessing. He turned the curse into a blessing. But God excluded the Ammonites and the Moabites from his presence as a demonstration of his judgment on them. Now, there, this doesn't translate exactly into the New Testament, into what the church is. But there are times when we have to draw relational lines as a church with somebody who claims to be a believer, but their life does not demonstrate the fruit and the faith of the ongoing work of the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. It's the church's responsibility to say, look, we have to draw a line. You can't, you're saying you're a believer. We don't see evidence for that. Now, that doesn't mean we kick them out if they're, There's certain situations where you have to say you can't come to church if they are actively trying to convince people of uh, false doctrines. The shepherds of the church have to protect the flock. But in those situations, you draw, within the New Testament, you draw a line that says you can't come to the communion table. You can come to church. We want you to repent. We want you to be saved. But you can't come to the communion table. So excommunication is excommunioning. You can't come to the table. It's restricted because what this does is as your pastors, we are saying we trust the active work and we see the active work going on in your life. So that this this important moment is for us to remember that God has saved us and there's evidence of his grace in our lives. 
Now, people have used, especially Nehemiah 13, in several different ways, just call God a racist. See, God's a racist. He's old school. We have to, we have to be uh, smarter than God. We have to be wiser than God. We have to be more intelligent than God. So he's really not there because we're most intelligent. So let's, he, he's just old school. Uh, this is not about God being racist. This is about his intentional lines that he draws in the Old Testament and in the New because God's character is consistent. He draws lines from people who believe him and people who hate him. He's always drawn those lines. There's always opportunity for Gentiles, non-Jews, to come to Christ. Always opportunity. Remember Ruth? She was a Moabitess. What did she say to Naomi? I leave my land and my gods. I leave it all and I attach myself to you. There's a faith element that she's saying, your gods now are going to, your God's going to be my God. I'm leaving it. There was a, and who does she become? Wife to Boaz. Obed, Jesse, David. Is that great grandmother to David? Great, 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 great grandmother to Jesus. God's not about excluding just for the sake of, I don't like how you look. I don't like how you smell. Get away from me. God's not doing that. And we can't, we can't, uh, we got to think well enough to think beyond. Like, there's got to be an explanation. It could be a reasonable explanation. And God gives it. God has his people. Now, our response is to draw relational lines, not out of hatred, but in order to preserve our heart's affections for God. We're called to be salt and light on the earth, which requires interaction with all kinds of people all across our lives for our entire lives. We're not to be communal to the point where we we don't interact with people who don't trust God. No, drawing lines is about being intentional and being strategic in our relationships with the lost, with unbelievers. Understanding that when we make accommodations for people, that has the potential to bring down our faith and, and, and our affections for God will suffer. People who hate God seem like they can help, but they don't offer the bread of life. And what seems to be a blessing will usually result in a curse. But God is in control. And what the devil intends for evil, God will use for good. What have they done? What has been so evil? Eliashib gives Tobiah a room in the temple. Let's remember who Tobiah is. Way back in chapter 2, we learn, one, he's an Ammonite. So he's not supposed to be in the assembly at all. And he was part of the team to attack the people's work, telling them that wall's going to be so weak, a fox can't even be on it. Tobiah was an enemy, and Eliashib makes accommodation for him and says, why don't I give you an apartment in the temple? What happened? Eliashib was supposed to be protecting the storerooms. So the people who would come in from the, the countryside and within the city to worship, they would have the necessary provisions to enhance the worship experience. But instead, he gives into the pressure to accommodate his relative. We don't know what kind of family pressure was going on. It was relational pressure. And he gives in the presence of Tobiah, who is an enemy of God in the place where God was to reign preeminent and supreme, shows how the bar of God's word and the blessing on obedience was lowered. The value on obedience was lowered and disregarded. 
Tobiah's presence in the temple replaced God's presence. Tobiah's opinions replaced God's word. Tobiah's needs were met rather than storing up to meet the needs of the people as they came to worship. So our question is who or what is your Tobiah? What have you accommodated and given room to in your own heart? Something that would, that at one point you understood that, that, that makes me suffer in my relationship with God. I need it far away. There's this weird accommodating effect. And it's not, it proves to be unholy where we just give access and room into our hearts. What calls for your attention that ends up distracting you from a pure devotion to Jesus? Here's a way to think about it. What in your life if you didn't have it in your life, would absolutely terrorize you. Because that's usually what we value most in our hearts. That, that could be what we're giving into and, and accommodating. and could be thoughts. Uh, we live in a culture that honors humanism, values humanism. Man is the ultimate determiner, uh, uh, determination and, and of his design, of, his, of her fate. So it's all about us. And authority rests in us. And secularism says, no, we have everything that we need based on what we discover. We don't have to ask God's opinion anymore. A materialism that looks at stuff to get to make us feel because we need to get stuff to feel endorphins. We need to get stuff to feel happy. But materialism is not just objects. Materialism also happens with bodies. Because within a secularist humanist culture, what's happening? We're separating value from physical features. And so we have materially, people think, oh, it's just a body. I can do whatever. This is exactly what happened in the New Testament. That's why the letters were written. I can do whatever. So I can have sex with everybody. I can do whatever because it doesn't affect my, my soul, my inside. We separate the material from the spiritual. And all of a sudden, we don't think there's an effect. But there's absolutely a crossover. Men who say, I don't want, I'm, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. I don't want this. That's, that's a materialism. No, this, this material thing doesn't, it's not the value that I want it to have. So therefore, what I want needs to be honored. Because within the secularists, we don't need God, humanist authorities, and you. Just do whatever. Church, this stuff affects us. And we have to be wise about it. Because we have relationships in our lives that we should be strategic with. Look, we should know homosexuals. We should. And we should be strategic in our relationships with them to be able to build a bridge of love that lets them know you think you're finding freedom, but it's actually, it's, it's a rope tightening around your hands and your feet. And what you think is freedom is actually becoming more constraining to you. But when you trust God's design, that's when you have the freedom that you enjoy or that you crave and to enjoy. We should know people like this. We should know people in all aspects of life in order to be salt and light. Our relationship should be not not uh, uh, exclusive, inclusive, or I'm just going to huddle over here. No, we, we are to be salt and light. But when you have relationships like that, things get messy, don't they? 
They get messy. It's easier just to avoid everybody. If you're an introvert, you love avoiding people. Just get away from me. Let me be quiet with myself. But God says, no, I still want you in the world. Don't want, you to, don't want the world to be in you, but I want you in the world. But then it's like, God, um, when that happens, I struggle. And what I thought was an enemy, now I'm given access into my heart. And Lord, how do I do this? He says, trust me. Because we want to, we don't want things in our lives that will, that will infiltrate and cause us to devalue the strength of God's word in our life and the authority of God's word. But look, we also have to see that one thing always leads to the next, always leads to another. When we give room to things that are less than God's best for us, we will end up neglecting our obedience to him. He's asking them, why is the house of God forsaken? Two chapters ago, they said, we will not neglect the house of God. Why is it being neglected? Why is it being forsaken? So we will, we will neglect obeying God and then robbing ourselves of the blessing that was promised if we live in him. The storerooms of the temple were empty to the tithe and the contributions intended for the people of God. And when Tobiah was given a room and we give him room, we will neglect our spiritual graces that help us fellowship with God. Our compromise is not... It's not kept nice and tidy in a room off to the side. Struggle will accompany our neglect and our disobedience. So what is the, how, do, how, how do we renew our hearts? We look at what Nehemiah's response was. Clean it out. Clean it out. Jesus, remember, went in and cleansed the temple. He's saying, look, there's a lot of commotion right now, but there's not the fruit of trust and belief in God's word. That's what he was demonstrating. Clean it out. Nehemiah cleans it out, throws things out. There might be physical things that you need to do in your life to help clean out your heart, but most of the time it's emotional. This is why Pure Heart Weekend is so helpful because it, that's what it's doing. It's finding out what are the, what are the lingering effects of life circumstances and situations that have caused uh, Tobias to remain there, and I start believing lies about God rather than the truth of God. So we find out, God, I want to cleanse, I want to experience your cleansing and heart renewal, and I want to obey. But listen, trust the voice of reliable leaders. Nehemiah puts new leaders in place, and he tells the people, all right, follow their lead. Then in the next section, verses 15 to 22, we see that there is a ceaseless treading. There's a wine press and there's, they're profaning the Sabbath. They're working on the Sabbath, seeking to enrich their physical lives while neglecting their spiritual lives. Sabbaths may have started great and full of rest. Remember, they had all the gumption. We're going we're gonna to honor the Sabbath. We recognize how we got to this. People, Our forefathers neglecting the Sabbath. We're going to honor. But over time... Small things added up to full-scale disobedience. Maybe one week's weather caused them to have to not work on a particular day, and someone thought it might just, just this one time on the Sabbath, it's going to make this transaction, it will be good. Perhaps those who were honoring the Sabbath were then overtaken by jealousy in comparison uh, for people who were not working for who, who were working on the Sabbath. Well, they're making money and they're stealing my money because I just, I promised to sell to that guy on Monday and he's taking my stuff on Saturday. Uh, I'm going to go out, help myself out. One thing leads to the next. 
The act of making money on the Sabbath uh, is a matter of trust. The rest that God commands for his people is for us to preserve our trust in God. When we take matters into our own hands and trust in what we see rather than what we don't see, rather than God, we will become calloused to the leading of the Lord. And when we think he's taking too long, we are all too ready to step in with our own self-sufficiency and our own self-reliance and make things happen. See, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was made for man. God intended, I want you to rest. And I want your rest to recognize you're in your relationship with me. I provide everything. Now, the next step, be joyful about it. Don't think about what you're not getting to. Don't think about what you're not making. See, we need an exponential reminder of our weakness and God's strength as we trust him with our needs. And, and taking an entire day to do nothing, to really, but to enjoy creation, but not to provide for ourselves, that's exponential. Like, do we really need an entire day? God says, yeah, because it needs to be long enough to make you recognize it's real. Because <laughs> I'll just take three hours, and then I'll get to everything I need to do. See, and then we're making the same mistakes the previous generations did. The previous generations made, which got them kicked out of the promised land in the first place. So what does Nehemiah, in his response, he shuts the doors. Nehemiah shut the doors of Jerusalem to protect the Sabbath. We need sometimes to shut the doors of our lives. It mostly will probably look like shutting something off, turning it off. To preserve rest. We need to invest in God's word. We need to invest in God's community. Work will intrude. They set up camp right outside. All right, we can't go in there. Let's just just hang out outside and see what happens, Nehemiah. If I see you out here again, I'm going to lay hands on you. And he he must have been like a tough dude because they listened. Like, all right, we'll go. Look, when we try, when when we get into a rhythm of, of Sabbath, um, there will needs that will intrude. Work will intrude. But listen, let's take a, a spiritual principle here. The more we stand for the Lord, it will eventually leave because it doesn't have access points to us. We will continue to grow weary with our ceaseless treading. And the promise of relief will not come without our rest. See, we think if we just have, let me just have this much more money or this thing over here, we think relief will come in that moment, but it will never come. You know, Ted Turner years ago said, life's an empty bag. We just throw things in it and it's just falling through. And so we think we just have to throw more in it and it's nothing. Now we won't find the relief we crave until we rest and trust the Lord. So how do we renew our heart? Do God's things God's way. Do what he says and trust blessing will come about. Then the last section, verses 23 to 31, we have what began as an intermingling with the relational lines that were blurred became intermarriage. And and whenever marriage is talked about in the Old Testament, God, he holds it very seriously because he wants to preserve the spiritual inheritance of his people. The reoccupying of the promised land by the exiles was to ensure that the land stayed in the family of God. They wanted to make sure the inheritance that was, that was promised to Abraham was preserved for the future of God's people. Intermingling that 
caused other nations to come in and eventually take over what God promised for his people. The inheritance, remember, it's about praise. Families were to preserve praise from generation to generation. Psalm 145, verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. What is that a verse about? Praising God. We praise God by by singing. We praise God by teaching our children about the greatness of God. We praise God by reminding them of all the testimonies of his faithfulness and his steadfast love in our lives. But when we give room to Tobiah, we begin to make concessions for things that are around, and then we find that spiritually we intermingle with things that will lead to cutting off praise for the next generation. Um, I see this. I see this with families that give an inordinate commitment and sacrifice to sports. And, and it starts with parents who really want the best for their kids. I'm all about that. Want their kids to have. But look, my wife and I frequently will remind ourselves that we didn't have a lot growing up. We didn't get to do everything that we wanted to do. Now that can be a, well, gosh darn it. I'm going to make sure that my kids can do everything that they want to do. Well, you know, sometimes growing up, it was really good for me to hear no. It was good. I needed to be told, Jeff, can't do that. Because it, it, it helped me understand when God tells me no. But look, they're, they're, we've, our kids have been able to participate and do a lot of things. And there's always been an element of to be better, you'd have to join a team that plays on the weekends and travels on the weekends. And we've always been honest with our kids and say, you know what? That's just never in the cards. It's not something that we, not because, oh, we just can't afford it, which is true. We could never afford it. But the other, it's like they dropped some money on this stuff. You went to Dallas for three days? How did you, I, I, how did you do that? But for us, it was, and it was not, not because, hey, your dad works on Sundays. No, it was about this. We value the family of God. That's what we do. We value you being around the family of God. And I am so thankful that my children have so many people, the the people who have made the most impact in their lives, as I'm doing a quick inventory in my head, I think this is a true statement. The people who have had the most impact in their lives have been in the church. They're, they're, They're children's church teachers. I'm so thankful for all of them. I'm doing an inventory in my mind from across the lake where they grew up at Lakeview Christian Center and they're coming over here. I'm so thankful that some of you are my kids' heroes. I'm so thankful because it preserves praise. It preserves, this is what we value. And is now, uh, which is just so awesome, Having more grandchildren, this is just awesome. Oh, my heart and my prayer for them is that my children will pass on praise 
to their children. And I get to participate with that, and I'm excited, and I get to love them, and they get to, they get to experience God through me as well. And Kathy, I love that. But listen, we want to see our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren loving Jesus with everything they are. Not having everything they want. We want them loving. And we want them going out into the world and being salt and light. Because you know, we see it. Things are happening in the world around us. There's concerns for us. Absolutely, I have concerns for my children's generation and my grandchildren's generation. Because the world is going in the, the, the hatred of God direction. Always has been. But we want them praising. We want them to know the language of God. Oh, that's what we want. We want them to know the language of God. His love. And Jesus. But we see. Nehemiah does something crazy. <laughs> what the men thought around them. Was going to be a blessing. By marrying those that pleased them. Even though they were Ammonites and Moabites. They were not among the people of God. It turned out to be a curse for them. And the lesson, the lesson should have been learned through uh, Solomon's many foreign wives who turned his heart in his later years. But Nehemiah's response, it represents the impact of small concessions and accommodations. We, he, he made them feel physically. Look, he, look at that again. Verse 25. I confronted them and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. When I've been invited, sometimes I've, when I've done premarital counseling and officiated in uh, wedding ceremonies, sometimes the guys will get together for a little bachelor thing, and they'll invite me. And, and, and it's, it's a special time because they'll give older guys, too. They'll give some wisdom and stuff. And, um, and just in prayer times, all that. So I usually bring this out during those times. And I say, look, if you break this covenant, with your now soon-to-be wife. Here's, this is like the Covenant Coalition. Right here is represented in this room. You are giving us permission to confront you, to curse you, to beat you, and pull out your hair. <laughs> Look, the fathers-in-law love it. They're like, oh yeah, this is a great thing, Jeff. <laughs> but this is showing, this covenant means a lot. Not because God is hinging on it like, look, if this breaks, the world's going to go to hell. God's doing his work, and he wants us to be a part of that work. That smells good. He wants us to be part of his work. So he wants this for us. The covenant is important for us, and it's valuable. So Nehemiah makes them feel physically for the spiritual impact they've made. But look, he curses them. And this is, not, this is not a context that carries over in the New Testament. So we don't know if God approved of this or not. He doesn't say, and God approved. Nehemiah just says, remember me, Lord. I tried to do what I thought was right. <laughs> but look, he curses them so they would recognize the destruction of curses. When, it's in order to renew our hearts, we, we need to continue to look to Jesus who was cursed in our place. And when we look at that curse, we are freed from our curse. As we continue to look at Jesus. Remember the, uh, Jesus said as the serpent was raised in the wilderness, so the son of man will be raised. Why was this? Remember it was the serpents, the fiery serpents were biting the people. And Moses had to put a bronze serpent on a pole. So look at the curse 
to be freed from the curse. We look to Jesus to be freed from what curses us, sin and shame. We look to Jesus. But ultimately, this chapter ends. And this is not a tidy chapter like, oh, and Jerusalem was great. Nope. This is 400 years before Jesus. By the time Jesus gets there, they went so rabid on rules. And then A.D. 70, everything is destroyed again. And it still remains that way today. What this chapter reminds us of is there's a journey for us until we are with Jesus again. It makes us long for home. I don't want to struggle anymore. I don't want to struggle. I want to trust you completely and fully. And I want to experience your healing and the freedom you have for me that Jesus bought on the cross. But Lord... Oh, I'm so tired and weary of the struggle. This is an honest reminder of how our hearts need renewing to ultimately remind us that we long. These people needed to be reminded. You need a Messiah that's going to solve all this. And it reminds us that we've had, we have been given a Messiah, but we long for an eternal home. We need our heavenly home to arrive so we are freed once and for all from sin. We are freed from sin penalty, sin's penalty in this life. And, and as we mature in Christ, we should be having victory over that sin. But listen, we still await being freed entirely. And this just causes us to remember, this is not my home. Lord, I long for heaven. I long for your presence. To be your people in your place, in the new Jerusalem, experiencing your presence for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for your word being, in many ways, the language of God. So Lord, we, we want to be a people who enjoy being with one another. We want to be a people who enjoy you. So we can be salt and light. But Lord, I pray that we would speak the language of love. We would speak the language of grace toward one another. And we would find ever-increasing safety as a church, as we relate to you. And Lord, we ask for our children, save them, keep them, sustain them. We ask for our grandchildren, save them, keep them, sustain them for your glory. And Lord, we, we want to pledge our obedience, but what we do is say, Holy Spirit, Anoint us and empower us and fill us for the work you have for us to walk out. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.